Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of lasting well-being. And if you've listened before, welcome back. In life, we spend a great deal of time looking back or looking forward. On the podcast, we often focus on the importance of staying in the moment, but it's natural to reflect on what's happened or anticipate what's to come. But there are times in life where it feels like there's not a great deal to look forward to. Maybe you've hit a culminating moment of some kind, you've finished the big work project, received the award, watched the kids leave your home, gone on the vacation, won the title, or maybe even entered retirement, like some people keep on claiming they have. These experiences can come with enormous fulfillment for a while. And then we might ask ourselves, now what? What's next? Or even, is this all there is? Addressing these questions can be practically challenging and emotionally pretty complicated. So to help us do that and handle those moments of change, I'm joined, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. So, Dad, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. And I'm really liking where you're going with this, Forrest. Yeah, absolutely. I think it'll be a good episode. I've been looking forward to it. We actually both have. And before we get started, I just wanted to let everyone know that if you've always wanted to see us talk rather than just hear us talk, we're now taking videos of many of our conversations, and they're posted up on my YouTube channel. There will be a link to the video version of this episode in the description of today's podcast, and you can find everything at youtube.com slash C slash Forrest Hansen. So let's start with a little bit of context on our process behind this episode. We sometimes get emails from listeners requesting different kinds of conversations. And we got a question from somebody basically asking something to the extent of, hey, I'm sneaking up on 60 years old, my life's been through a lot, I've had these big developmental moments, and now I'm just kind of looking around asking, now what? And this got us to thinking about those what happens next moments more in general. That is a great, far-reaching, and deep topic. And it's kind of amusing to me as an old dog that you, Forrest, a young dog, are actually <laughs> interested in this question, which I think gives you good credit. Yeah. There are natural transitions in life. Life, in effect, is one transition after another. As many have noted, uh, once you pull your finger out of the stream, you can never put your finger back in to exactly the same place. I think that was one of the Greek philosophers who used that image a long, 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 long time ago. So in every moment in our life, there is impermanence. Each moment is transient, it's disappearing beneath our feet while the next moment continually arises. And being able to be okay with that fundamental process and to rest in wisdom about it is at the heart of many, many deep wisdom traditions and wisdom teachings. So it's a big topic and it's even very concrete when, for example, your kids leave home or when, for example, your body ages and you're no longer able to do a certain kind of thing you used to do. Uh, I went out recently and did some rock climbing at my advanced age of 68. And I came back and I was groaning and gr I was grumbling about it all to, with a person who's an expert on the body. And he said, well, I've noticed that as people get older, they need more time to recover. They can still perform maybe at their previous level, but they just need more time to recover. So these are changes. These are, these are things that you can never go down that road again. Uh, sometimes there are irrevocable losses with other people. They die or they will never talk to you again, or you'll never be able to engage them in that way. That boat has sailed for you or something like that. So yes, come into terms with loss and irrevocability 
while also still finding meaning in life and not excessively clinging to a shadow that has fundamentally evaporated, but instead with wisdom, letting it go. Yeah, Mm. this is a very good subject. Yeah, and you raised the aspect of this that's about those kind of stages of life. Yeah. And that's definitely something that we're going to explore during today's conversation. And yet at the same time, it's very germane to me in my life, even as a 33-year-old, as you said, speaking as a 68-year-old, these questions can be a little bit different, but I actually think there's a lot of overlap. overlap. There's a lot of universality here. I had an experience recently just with the big summit that I did where there was this big effortful push It was tons of work. I was completely swamped for a solid six weeks, if not longer. And there was this big kind of cathartic moment at the end of it that you were a part of, certainly, where we did the kind of live Q&As and I got to talk to people and it was really lovely. Got a lot of really positive feedback. Okay, that's all great. And then it was done. (laughs) It was just over and it vanished into the ether, all of this effort that I put out. And sure, I got benefits from it. But there was this kind of weird feeling for a couple of weeks, I'm even to a degree feeling it now, where I was almost just kind of listless and I couldn't really get my head in the game around work because there was this weird sense of like, okay, now what do I do? I don't have something to kind of organize my work in the same way that I had for a month and a half. And that felt really good. And then I was kind of left without that. And I think that we see this all over the place. Uh, I think we really see it... very easy example inside of our culture and certainly, you know, my personal interests as a sports fan are various uh, sports teams where they win the title in their given discipline. And then everyone is immediately talking about, okay, like, but what about next year? Yeah. And and that's a bit of cultural construct as well, where we have this like incessant focus hmm. on what the next thing is and in some ways that I think are psychologically healthy and in some ways, maybe not so much. That's really interesting. You're just making me realize for us, this is personal value for me, Hmm. that, how can I put it, when we come to the end of something, typically the advice is that, in effect, we should celebrate the new beginnings, the new possibilities. Mm. That's what we should Mm -hmm. really focus Mm -hmm. on. Mm -hmm. And I'm just realizing here that in a funny kind of way, it's just as appropriate to celebrate the ending of something as it is to celebrate the beginning of something. Yeah, absolutely. Both are really, really true. Yeah, in our kind of materialistic, forward-oriented, future-focused culture, it's all about what's next, what's your next performance, you're only as good as your last deal, you're only as good as your last movie in Hollywood, et cetera. But in fact, the truth is, we're living in the middle of endings continually. And if we could open our mind and our heart to be more celebratory about them, Mm, and even mm -hmm. to be with other people and celebrating their own endings, that would give us twice as many possibilities for celebration. Also, when I think about the endings, they create fields of possibility. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, there, there could be a loss. Like, okay, darn, you no longer can get to do that thing, let's say, or you've completed that role. You're no longer functioning in that role anymore in your work or in your home or with a friend. All right. But that clears space for you to step into new ways of being. A little story about you. I don't know if you remember it. Uh, we were in Yosemite we, uh, where we went as a family a lot of time. Yeah, all the time. And uh, we were in, in Curry Village and there was this long-haired, you know, kind of ne'er-do-well climber type character sitting quietly at a table, maybe with his French fries, 
playing chess with himself. And we sidled over, and I think you were about maybe nine or 10 or something. And he looked at you and he said, do you want to play? And you said, sure, because you're that kind of person. You're like a yes to life person. So, <laughs> and it was really neat. And I was, the dad was really happy. Oh, here's this cool guy. Anyway, so long story short, you play chess with them. It's nice. You eventually lose. And you say something like, can we play again? Can we play again? Can we play again? Because it was really fun. And he was a good guy. And he looked to you and he said, all good things end eventually, right? And it was very poignant. I might've murmured all bad mm -hmm. things too, because that's me, mm -hmm. that's my brand. But there was that moment, <laughs> what next, right? Yeah. <laughs> what do you do next? Yeah. The, the good thing has ended, yeah. there's loss there. And yet mm. <sighs> you took a breath, you didn't break down, you didn't freak out. You kind of shrugged and was like, oh, okay, I think you might have sort of gotten down off the chair and sort of looked around like, I'm hungry. <laughs> yeah. <What's laughs> what, what do we do now? <laughs> yeah. How about a pizza and a milkshake? <laughs> hey, it sounds great to me. Um, I mean, that was a point in my life when I, I was still eating those things. And that sounds yeah, fantastic. That's true. But that's a, a story for another time. Um, yeah. yeah. So I, I think that that's a great illustration of the point, this idea of these moments of inflection, these moments of fundamental change, and also what you were talking about there about desire. And one of the ways to ground this conversation potentially is in a very, you know, on-brand rickish way in the nature of the brain itself. And a lot of the research on cognitive bias of different kinds shows that we expect you both feel worse after negative future events that we predict will happen and feel better after positive future events that we predict will happen. So essentially, your brain exaggerates how good it's going to feel in the future and how bad it's going to feel in the future. And when they do these studies on people where they ask them to kind of anticipate how good something will be or how bad something will be, yeah. and then they pull them after the thing has happened, they basically always find that our anticipation engine, if you want to kind of put it that way, tends to exaggerate how serious stuff will be. The brain's a motivation machine. Uh, like survival under incredibly harsh conditions, which is where we evolved, is really supported by constantly looking for more while avoiding discomfort in all of its forms. And I think that you really see this underpinning the question of what next. That's great. You're there. You're exactly right. Mm. And you can watch it. You can observe it in your own experience. This whole yeah, sort of, totally. you know, an anticipation machine in effect. Uh, little things like you reach for a, a water bottle and your brain will anticipate how much the water bottle will weigh and then generate initially enough motor strength to lift it. But if the water bottle is actually heavier or lighter than you predicted or anticipated, you know, it'll be jerky and clunky when you bring it to yourself. So it's continually doing that. And there's a kind of, you know, if you go to the roots of Buddhist psychology, there's one of the three major forms of craving is craving for becoming. Mm -hmm. And you can just feel that. It's really interesting, this including on different timescales. The craving for becoming tonight with your friend, what's going to happen, the craving for becoming what you're going to be doing over the next few weeks, the craving for becoming this kind of fuzzy, rosy notion of your future 10, 20 years from now, craving for becoming or simply for becoming in the next moment. And there's a peacefulness mm -hmm. that can come in when we pay more and more mindful attention to that feeling in the body mm -hmm. of that craving for becoming mm -hmm. and keep relaxing it 
which involves in a, in a way a sort of not knowing and a trusting a basic trusting it's a little bit like instead of muscularly swimming forward in the stream of life we more relax and kind of lean backward and trust with beginner's mind a kind of child mind trust that the river of life will carry us forward mm. it feels totally different obviously make reasonable plans you know trusting god but tie your camel etc cetera, etc cetera. but that that's a real shift it's one i'm still working on <laughs> by the way mm. but it's a real shift yeah to to like let go of some of that craving for becoming mm -hmm. yeah and i i don't know what the cart is and what the horse is in this particular metaphor uh, I, I don't know if it's that the brain tendency came first and then the culture took advantage of it or the culture reinforced the brain tendency or what, but just to speak to some of those things you were mentioning a second ago, our society is completely set up to talk in terms of shoulds and end dates and by this time you should have done this and by that time you can no longer do this other thing over here. That's how we've set up our cultural structures in some ways that maybe are good, but I think that in a lot of ways that are really problematic. And that just reinforces these tendencies that already exist inside of us, as you were saying, that longing for becoming. It can create a lot of insecurity in people hmm. where they feel like they have become, but in the wrong way or something like that. You know, there's a lot of good material in the first half of the 20th century in psychology. Hmm. Freud, Jung, the emergence in the 50s of the humanistic psychology, Eric Erickson, including these developmental stage theories, like Erickson's nine or so stages or something. Then you have other, uh, Daniel Levinson, other stage theories as well. And one of the things that I think of a lot is, well, first of all, there are these themes like in Erickson that he associates with different ages, right? But these are themes that we could relate to at any time. So in middle age for us, for example, especially late middle age, Erickson said that there is a tension between um, stagnation or generativity, mm -hmm. for example. And yet I would think of you as someone who, and many, many young people are grappling with, hmm, am I stagnating? Am I stagnant? Yeah, totally which doesn't necessarily mean you have to, you know, work a hundred hours a week or start your own business or get an Olympic gold medal. It just means in whatever domain you care about, including maybe just your relationships or being nurturing with other people or the way you make meals or organize your, your closet or your garden. Are, do you feel stagnant? Do you feel helpless? Do you feel hopeless? Do you feel frozen and immobilized? Or is there something creative moving through you? something generative, something actualizing. And I think that when people come to an end, particularly if it's an end that's been forced upon them, perhaps by the simple process of aging, biologically it's been forced upon them, perhaps it's been forced upon them by the death of someone that they had a deep relationship with, including perhaps a pet. Maybe it's an end that just is naturally timed out. You know, you're a professional athlete and unless you're Tom Brady, you're not going to be playing professional football, you know, much past your 30th birthday. And so for whatever reason, yes, if you come to an end, yes, there is a loss and there is a place for feeling the common humanity of that loss 
with compassion for yourself and celebrating what is good, not trying to look on the bright side, just celebrating what is good in related to all the things you've accomplished and and now the new opportunities here that have been cleared away. Mm-hmm. And then really look to the generative spirit in the core of your being. How does it want to manifest? What's the new possibility? What can you contribute, including in simple down-to-earth local sorts of ways? What can you manifest? You know, what can you tap into in your own deepest nature? Mm. So that's a very important thing to focus on when things have fallen apart and fallen away. Got it. What can you gather together and what can you create? Yeah, to dig into Erickson for a second here, just for a moment, I don't want this to turn into an intro to psychology class or anything like that. But that idea of generativity versus stagnation, a lot of what he was really focused on is this idea of trying to make your mark on the world mm-hmm. in different kinds of things. Essentially, how does somebody feel like they've left a thing behind that will outlast their own narrow lifetime? And I I do think that that's a huge part of this question, particularly as we start to move toward later stages in life and really addressing this question from the perspective as our initial questioner did of like, what do you do after age 60? Something like that. Man, a lot of that is wrestling with mortality in in different ways. And one way that that combat can take place is feeling like, have I left things behind that are going to matter after I'm gone? And wow, like that's a deep question. And it's, I mean, I have to imagine it's one that you've grappled with in your own life. And maybe we can get into that in a little bit. But also I want to talk about here this idea of integration versus disintegration, which for me has been like one of the absolutely most transformative things for me in terms of how to look at life. To just really simplify it, I don't know if this actually comes from some kind of overarching psychological theory or not. Maybe you'd know, Dad. But there's just this natural view that life has an upward trend line, that it's kind of like a flat upward line that just kind of goes up and up and up. And yeah, maybe at some point later in life, it starts to decline a little bit. Okay, sure. But the truth is, is that most of the time we kind of go up for a little while, particularly from a personal growth perspective here in terms of like thinking of our own journey toward greater actualization, healing, however you want to think about it. We kind of go up for a little while and then we sort of plateau and then we kind of disintegrate. Mm. We backslide, we fall off the wagon, we have a bad interaction with a friend in a friendship that was going really well. Things start to frustrate us. We feel like our own growth has been stymied. We just aren't going anywhere anymore. All of that really understandable stuff. And then the question is, what kind of an integration process happens after we go through that disintegration? So really life is more a series of you go up for a little while, then you kind of flatline, then you go down, then you go up for a little while, then you kind of flatline, then you go down. And that's actually what life is. And I definitely view my own life through that. And and I think that if you look back over your personal history, you can really see that in action. And what it does for me is it gives me a lot more appreciation for, for starters, the importance of those periods of disintegration. And um, also the value that we can get out of them, that often when things fall apart, it gives us a new opportunity to integrate in a different way moving forward. Well, Forrest, you have on your own named and figured out mm. a huge and fundamental principle in developmental psychology. Well, there you go. Broadly. So (laughs) 
clap, clap, you know, <laughs> seriously true. Uh, one of the interesting findings about this, actually, I'm just, re- yeah. here's a weird example that goes back to my Great. grad school in developmental psychology. Mm-hmm. There might've been more updated research, but I think it's kind of true that children, young children who are acquiring natural language, they're, they're learning to mm. speak whatever language, they're learning to speak English at age two or three. What will happen sometimes is they will learn a new form in proper grammar, like using the passive voice or something like that. And linguists who observe the acquisition of language will notice that as they reach into a new form and their language gets better over here or in some way, it actually tends to get worse over there. That their progress, their step forward, is actually sometimes accompanied by a certain amount of necessary backsliding for whatever reason, including the ways in which cognitively they're taxed, they're stretched by learning this new way of speaking correctly in more complex, let's say, moving toward adult ways of speaking kinds of ways. Isn't that really interesting? Yeah. And then, of course, we have the wonderful metaphor of the caterpillar and the butterfly. Mm. And what happens if, you know, you cut open the chrysalis, you cut open the cocoon halfway through? What do you see? You see some pieces that look kind of caterpillar-ish. You see some pieces that look <laughs> sort of butterfly-ish. Yeah. And you see some gooey mess that's neither, right? And yet that's a necessary process. And if we just stopped it right there, we would say, oh no, this is terrible. Mm, mm-hmm, Forget about mm-hmm. it, right? Don't do not do it. Stop, don't, stop becoming a butterfly. This is insane. <laughs> You're just terrible, terrible. But no, it's a necessary thing to go through. So I, yeah. I really want to underline and appreciate and try to take my own advice too here as well, Mm. that sometimes you just have to fall apart. And sometimes that's the honest truth. Your world has fallen apart. Your your cat has died. Um, Your friend has left. Uh, You no longer have that job. You got laid off. They made you retire. Uh, Your children have moved to the other side of the country. (sighs) You're falling. It's okay. You, you are falling apart. And maybe we ought to do a conversation sometime about how to how to fall apart, right? Yeah. Pema Chodron has a lovely book, of course, on this, When Things Fall Apart. Mm-hmm. But you're right. We really need to give ourselves that time. We really, really need to give ourselves that time. Daniel Levinson, one of the developmental psychologists I, I kind of mentioned in passing, he talks about adult development as a process of organization, disorganization, Mm. reorganization in upward spirals, which is exactly what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, super consistent. The point about it is that if you are going to develop, you need to go through periods of disorganization Mm -hmm. and to be good to yourself and okay with yourself and then make room for that to happen along the way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, a lot of it just comes down to like the self-compassion inside of those moments where there's kind of a, there's a practical side to this, deciding what to do next, where do I want to pivot to, what are the things that would fulfill me, and maybe we can engage that in a second. But then also I think that there is like, as you're saying, a psychological aspect or an internalized aspect to it, where it's about giving yourself the space that you need to come to a good decision about what to do next. Mm. Because a lot of the time when you start feeling those bad feelings, you start feeling like you're disintegrating a little bit. You start feeling like you got nothing to do. You're moping around the house, whatever. People don't like that experience, so they run away from it, very understandably. 
And sometimes in the process of doing that, that causes us to leap into something else that actually isn't very suitable for us uh, from a long-term perspective or to make a choice that we later regret because we wanted to get out of the negative experience and we didn't give ourselves the time that we needed to actually fully integrate it in a positive way. Totally true. People uh, often will, it's called foreclose uncertainty prematurely. Mm. They just, just like you said, and jump too quickly. On the other hand, sometimes uh, people drift a lot longer than they really need to drift. Yeah, totally. You know, and I've seen both of it. I've done both of it. You know, kind of broadly, it's interesting that as others have pointed out in many traditional cultures, there's a lot of respect for senescence, <laughs> for aged wisdom. There's respect for it. Mm, There's a place mm -hmm. for it. Mm -hmm. Whereas, as many have pointed out, in the West, particularly in America, we tend to be youth-oriented. Everybody wants to look younger. Where you know, if you're not, if you're over thirty, you're not current anymore. You're not with it or in touch. And and so it can happen for a person that when they hit sixty or even older, they feel increasingly irrelevant. Mm, mm -hmm. I've known many uh, women of that age bracket who say, no one looks at me anymore, period. It's as if you become invisible, not not so much an object of erotic interest, but you just become invisible altogether. Mm. And it's interesting to watch how people speak with someone who looks really old, uh, someone who's, you know, 80 and older, let's say, or, you know, really gray hair. They talk with them like they're babies, you know, baby talk. Mm, mm -hmm. I spent a fair amount of time in care facilities and so forth uh, while my parents were in their last months and years. And it was just stunning to me how often the staff and others would address these older people who were retired brain surgeons or had raised a family and were a matriarch of a wonderful extended family and deeply involved in their children's lives and a serious bridge player and whatever, fill in the blank, they were being spoken to as if they were stupid idiots. So mm -hmm. I just think it's important to not do that and to realize, my two cents, here we go, <laughs> that a lot of the conventional so-called gold rings in our culture are overrated. Like you said earlier, that inner advertising agency in the brain that evolved to keep us, you know, running toward carrots and running away from sticks that tends to overvalue rewards and and also overwarn us about pains of different kinds. You know, we tend to think like, oh, you know, career is everything. If you're no longer in the game, you're a nobody. If you're no longer are actively raising a family, you don't have a function, you don't have a role in this in this life. And so much of that is not true. Because the truth is, in a generation or two, almost no one will be remembered. Mm -hmm. In a generation or two, that river will have moved on. So getting caught up in impressing other people or making some kind of mark, you know, it's mostly fool's gold. It's mostly a brass ring. And instead, you know, at least my two cents, the key values at all ages, and especially as you get older, are summarized as quality of life values, service values, and learning slash growing slash awakening values. Healing, learning, growing, awakening. Those big three, quality of life, contribution, and personal development. Mm -hmm. And that's where to focus. And in the last 30 year life, let's say, you're more equipped, really, usually, 
to engage in those three values than at any other period of your life. Yeah, I think that's a really useful point. You're less you're less burdened by stuff. You got more room to breathe. You know more things. You have more practical wisdom. You're more skillful in lots of ways. You're not so hot-headed. You're less likely to get into trouble with other people. And hey, this is your time. And for me, you know, honestly, I do think I'm probably in the last third of my life. I figure I'm probably past the halfway point unless there's a real medical miracle in the next 30 years. So... Hey, as you put it, squeeze the juice out of the orange. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's an awesome reflection and might be helpful for people who are listening to this who are a little older, who are a little more mature, to feel like there's still a lot of opportunity in that. And honestly, for the people who are not of that age bracket, like myself, people who are more in the, you know, ending the first third of their life as, as mm -hmm. I, I mean, you know, God willing and all of that, but as, as I hope that I'm just ending the first third of it, there is this feeling that I can feel creeping into me of, oh, are the best years of my life behind me? Mm -hmm. And I think that that really is, is part of the questions or, or the points that you were making about the way that we've set up that social structure where yeah. you hit a certain age and you're kind of no longer valued in a big picture way. And I can feel my own fears around that and my own concerns around, wow, um, how what's it going to be like to be 68 years old, to throw you out here as an example. And if you don't mind, I'd love to kind of use you as an example here, uh, both for specifically the developmental stages question, but really generalizing this out because, I mean, most of the people who listen to this podcast are not 68 years old. So things that we can all take into our own lives for dealing with these moments of what's next or these inflection points where we go from doing one kind of thing to doing a different kind of thing, coming to terms with endings of different kinds, all those things that we kind of said in the beginning. So the way that I see it, there are kind of two categories of things, right? There's relating to the feeling of completion or the feeling of some kind of thing being over. And then there's, okay, making a good decision about where to turn your focus. So like prospectively and then looking toward the past. We've done a lot on making good plans, making good decisions, all of that. You can really find that in the, uh, in the back catalog of the podcast if you go on iTunes or something similar where all of the episodes are listed out. So maybe with a little bit more of a focus on dealing with the emotional aspects of coming to terms with endings of different kinds, mm. which I don't think we've necessarily explored as deeply, and then maybe a little bit more on the forward-looking stuff. I'd love to start asking just kind of how about you, Dad? <laughs> you know, as you were saying, you're 68. You are inching toward retirement, to be fair. You've been inching toward retirement for about a decade now. It's one of the running jokes inside of our family. Dad is in a permanent state of almost retired. Um, and you're also a guy who is really motivated by your work, and you love working. You could probably keep on working almost up until the day you died if you wanted to. How are you feeling about your own moment in life here? Oh, it's very sweet. Yeah. Well, kind of frankly... I've had a couple of health scares over the last mm -hmm. 15 years, 10 years, really. And they've just been scares. So for those who might be concerned, I'm really okay. Especially for a, a guy my age, I'm, in, I'm really okay. Yeah, totally say so. But still, you have that moment where the doctor says, this doesn't look good. 
and there's 10 days before you find out what it means. Or you get a false positive finding, as I had, that your carotid arteries are 50% or 65% blocked. That's a health scare. And when you get the kind of a scare, as I did, there's a real taking stock. There's a real taking stock. And I can genuinely say that in each of these times, it was as if my mind had sort of three layers to it. One top layer was problem solving, figuring it out. What does it mean? Get a second opinion. What treatments are available? So forth. Underneath it all was, you know, the natural reaction of the body. The body doesn't want to die. The body wants to see grandchildren. If I ever get any grandchildren, hint, hint. Uh, <laughs> you know, you want to you want to keep on going. You want the party to keep on going. Then underneath that all has been for me a feeling of deep gratitude for the life I've been able to have, which has been far from perfect. There have been a number of missteps in it, lost opportunities, boats that sailed that I was never able to get back on, challenges and so forth. And on the whole, though, tremendous sense of gratitude with even deeper than that in ways that start escaping language, a feeling of somehow always being part of things as a whole, kind of feeling like as a wave, let's say, always feeling like my nature was water. Mm. My nature was the ocean expressing itself locally so that eventually when this wave subsides, as all waves do eventually, it will be all right because I've always been one with water like that. And I think what I'm trying to name here is not about any kind of crediting of myself. It's just being real and also naming for people things to pay attention to, solving the problems, feeling the grief, the mourning, the realness in the body in a naked, bare, vulnerable, real kind of way. There's appropriateness to that while also really looking back on the life you've had and finding what feels generally grateful about it. And then perhaps there's something even deeper than that. So that's been that's been very real for me. Mm. I have a, two little practical suggestions, if it's okay. Mm-hmm. I'll just kind of name here. Yeah, please. One is a really interesting thing. And I'll ask you this question. I'll turn it on you a little bit. Mm. So whether you're 33 or 68 or 103, if you were to imagine looking back at all the previous forests, stretching back in time to the day you were born, let's say. And in a loose kind of way, if you were to look back at the line, imagine a line, each day a a different forest. And if you were to look at them and bow in their direction, maybe bow to one of those forests in particular, maybe bow to certain qualities that have been manifest down that whole long line, maybe bow to the group as a whole, what would you be bowing to in your previous selves? This feels like a Zen koan to me. You know, this is very, what is the sound of one hand clapping? <laughs> no, um, no, it's not like that. It's more, <laughs> it's more real. It's like, I could tell you all kinds of stuff I would bow to in the line of forests, you know? What would you bow to? Yeah, yeah, like, what, what do you mean? Oh, wow. I, and I do this, actually. I do this routinely. When I meditate, I offer three bows. Okay. You know, one to the ultimate, one to lineage of teachers, and one to huh. the previous Ricks, and, and including friends and family, including you, that have been supportive along the way. Mm. So it's kind of like three bows. It's pretty cool, actually. What are your three bows 
you know, in effect to someone and maybe these loose categories. And oh gosh, the Rick's effort, trying, mm. continuing to go, wanting to learn, uh, acknowledgement of error, acknowledgement of fault, loving, wanting to contribute, wanting to help, you know, a certain spiritedness or kind of a playful sparkiness, just kind of in my personality, mm. you know, a, a longing to find truth, uh, wanting to know what really is at the bottom of things, what's at the heart of the matter, wanting to understand, separating personal opinions from recognizing what's actually true, appreciating people who've been helpful, mm, mm -hmm. not thinking I did it all on my own. Yeah. Anyway, I just... Totally. These would be things without, and it's not about, it's not ego, it's not praise. It's more like just, what are you about to? Yeah. Think about what are you about to in general? Mm -hmm. And then bringing that same quality of respect and gratitude and thankfulness and recognition. Whoop, if you were to look back at your own previous selves. Yeah. It's a very cool question, isn't it? It is. Um, to speak for myself, I think that curiosity for starters the the curious nature the seeking of truth the desire to find something meaningful or good out in the world my basic sociable qualities like friendliness a desire to connect with other people uh, looking for in general i think looking for the good in people the the capacity for for forgiveness and moving on oh. not taking things too seriously including the things that happen to you being willing to let things go, I think has served me enormously in life. Yeah, those are a lot of things that come to mind. And then also just like the good efforts that those past selves made that put me in a position today to reap the benefits of past work. I think that's a huge thing to, to appreciate in the past and feel, feel good about, feel connected to. That's good. And even how does it feel to just good on you? You know, to look back in that way mm -hmm. with respect and appreciation. I, I do think that for me, and I suspect for a lot of people, it can be quite challenging to give yourself a direct compliment in that way, if that kind of makes sense. Mm -hmm. It can feel a little egoic, oh, yeah. a little self-serving, kind of wonder where the line is. You start looking for the caveats. Yeah, you say the nice <laughs> thing, but then you're like, yes, but there but were all these other I, things. I you know? stole and a so, quarter from the communion yeah, box Yeah, like church the whole thing, and, right? The, all those tendencies yeah. that we have inside of the mind. And, and so even outside of this context of finding your, you know, healthy pivot or relating to the things that are no longer present, it can be really good to do a practice of like looking back and giving your past selves that appreciation, even if it's just the appreciation that they put you in a position today to be able to be going through this reflective process, which hopefully is one that you find helpful in healing. Yeah. And I think you're right that it can be uncomfortable for people. I think the way to relate to it is obviously it's an exercise to only do what you want to do. But if you think about what we routinely bow to mm. with a sense of what's good and bowing, it doesn't mean putting yourself beneath anything. It just means, you know, respect. And think of all the things we bow to in this life and think of all the people we would bow to and appreciate and acknowledge. And, well, why not apply the same standards to yourself? Mm -hmm. It also relates to me to the fact that when we recognize ourselves in this way, it helps us move on. It helps us appreciate strengths and qualities 
that we can continue to draw on or maybe foreground at this point in our life when maybe some things have fallen apart or there are is a time for new beginnings. And also, when we recognize these qualities worth bowing to, we can also more readily see, all right, all right, where there is some correction maybe to put in. Mm. Maybe alongside those recurring gifts or strengths have been some recurring foibles, yeah. lapses, totally. failures, things to correct, mistakes, lack of skillfulness. And then you can kind of see it more clearly, though, because you don't feel so bad when you see it. And I think about the ways in which our previous selves have kind of handed off the baton day after day, year after year, to set us up now for the success in the next lap around the track of each day. Mm. That's good. I think that's really lovely. Yeah, totally lovely. Okay, second key takeaway, and I'll be quick here, is when you're at a moment where things have fallen apart or you're transitioning, you're you're looking, now what? In addition to, I think, this exercise of appreciative sort of respect, for your previous selves. Going forward, I think a lot of people make the mistake of thinking that, of saving it up for the final battle, or thinking that they have more time than they really will have to do that one last thing. Whatever it might be, Mm -hmm. making Mm -hmm. peace with that person, sending that letter, writing that poem, finishing the screenplay, (laughs) building the chicken coop, Learning how to make an upside-down angel food cake, something like that, pineapple upside-down cake. They just keep deferring it and deferring it. And I would really stress to people, the thing to do at this stage is go for it now. Mm. And what really matters is not whether you succeed at it or complete it. Maybe something will happen before you have a chance to complete it. Maybe you never will complete it. Maybe you won't climb all the peaks in America that are 10,000 feet or higher. And I know people have that, for example, as a goal. There are a lot of them, 10,000 feet or higher. And maybe you won't get to do that, but the effort itself will be worthy. It will make you happy to try. It will help you live longer to have that kind of goal and project. You know, there's studies in which they would give people in old folks' homes, uh, if that's an acceptable term, a tomato plant. Mm. And the ones who got the tomato plant in the nursing care facility, lived longer just because they had something to keep them interested, right? So that would be the, the other thing I would say prospectively. As you look forward, what are those things that are really left for you to do? Maybe you backburnered them. Maybe it's time to pick up the piano again and learn how to play it or dust off those old music books and go back to your music. Mm-hmm. You know, Maybe it's time, like I said, to do that one final project that you really have always kind of kick down the road year after year. Go for it. It doesn't matter if you complete it or succeed at it. Just going for it is going to make you feel better. Yeah, I think that's a really wonderful reflection. I find it very personally touching, actually, to to be honest, particularly that idea of having something to care for, essentially, which is what you're doing with the tomato plant in that example. Um, And one of the big things that you see returning to Erickson's work around generativity and stagnation, all that good stuff, is this idea of mentorship and menteeship mm. and the relationship that that can have for people throughout the course of their life. And yeah, I don't know why this is tying in for me, but for some reason it is, so bear with me. Uh, there objectively is a moment in all of our lives when we have 
peaked, to use a certain kind of word. We've achieved the highest we will ever achieve. We signed the big book deal and we will never get a book deal that big again. We put on the summit. We won the medal. We're never going to win another Olympic medal. You know, whatever. Like, choose your example here. Um, That's just objectively true. And most of the time, we actually won't know when it's happening. Sometimes we'll get a sense of it. But most of the time, we won't know when it when it's happening because we just have a view of ourselves, again, of life or of that constant upward trajectory. And a lot of what it feels like you're kind of speaking to here is to, regardless of that, to not get too attached to that idea of the peak mm. and to search more so for the ways in which we can continue to fulfill ourselves. And I think one of the big opportunities there, particularly for people past a certain age, but really people who have achieved any level of skillfulness mm-hmm. inside of this lifetime. You've given some examples, you know, whether it's cooking or it's being a good marketing person or whatever, you have an opportunity to give to other people. Hmm. And so maybe for the person who's looking at their life, they're sitting on the porch at 63, kind of going, Why, what do I do now? Look for opportunities to be a mentor. Look for opportunities to use all the skills that you've cultivated to benefit people in other generations and younger generations. Even if you don't have a kid, that can be a great way to get that sense of giving something to people who will be doing things long after the time that you are no longer here. And I think that even for somebody like me at the age of 33, I I remember being a camp counselor when I was 16, 17, 18, 19 years old. And that was enormously fulfilling to be a support to people significantly younger than myself and to feel like I played even some small role in contributing to the life of another person who will likely outlive me. So yeah, so that's just an aspect of this that I that I think can be a really powerful resource for people. What a beautiful way to finish this conversation about a really touching topic. Yeah. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. And I... You know, I, I think that this is such a rich territory. There's so much that we could do here with this whole thing. And I'm glad that our conversation kind of focused today on the aspects of this that are about giving ourselves peace for the ways in which something can feel unfulfilling, turning toward the past in a positive way, and then using that as a very secure base from which to explore this question of what's next. Because of Incredibly course- Incredibly well said. Yeah. That's so well, that's such a great summary. Well, thank you. Yep. Yeah, because like for everyone, it's gonna be different. We can't really answer what's next because we don't know your life, but we can try to give you some good tools that might help you find for yourself the answer to that question. And that's really what we focused on today. Today, we focused on the question of what's next and how we can relate to it when we've come to some kind of big concluding moment in life. We look back over our lives and we realize that we're not going to do that kind of a thing ever again. Or maybe we've had some major culmination and it's felt really good and then it just suddenly evaporates for us. And we look around and we go, wait a moment, is that it? And we began by kind of talking about that inside of my own life, with my experience with the Life After COVID Summit. I spent a ton of effort on it, Thankfully, it went really well. I got a lot of really positive feedback from it, all of this good stuff. And then it was over and it wasn't there anymore and it was gone. And it was like I was had put all of this effort into a thing that no longer existed. And it was really hard for me, I found, to rally myself in my work life 
for weeks, even a month afterward, because I was just kind of looking around going, ugh, now I'm back to this other kind of grind. And that feeling is really captured in the story of our development through life as well. We spent a little while talking about Eric Erickson and his stages of psychosocial development. In it, Erickson characterizes this period of life from 40 to 65 as having a core conflict of generativity versus stagnation. Do we feel like we're going to leave something behind that's going to matter to other people after we're gone? And I think that that's a question that's very relevant for people much younger than the age of 40. Certainly relevant in my life these days. And alongside that, how we have these natural patterns in life of integration and disintegration. Things get better for a while, we feel like we're on an upward trajectory, then we plateau a little bit. And then something happens and we fall off the wagon, we backslide, we have a bad interaction with somebody that we generally have good interactions with, we enter a cycle of disintegration. And in my experience, that's really just part of the process. And a lot of the learning for us is how we integrate out of that disintegration. It's a real opportunity for growth. We spent some time in the episode talking about relating to completion generally, and how the machinery of both our mind and our society can set us up to constantly search for the next thing and to feel extremely dissatisfied if we don't immediately find something else to search for. Rick had this great reflection during the episode. I think it went something like, the conventional gold rings of our society are often made of brass. There's a lot of bias in the mind that inclines us to anticipate excessively and to think that things are going to be really great when we achieve them in the future, only to find out when we actually do achieve them that they weren't really all that it was cracked up to be. Rick talked for a little while about this dynamic in his own life and how he's addressed these questions personally as somebody who's 68 years old and moving into another stage. And I appreciated a reflection that he had, which was really honestly helpful for me personally, this idea that as we age through life, society often tells us that we have less and less to contribute as we get older. But the truth is, most of the time as we age, we're accumulating. We're gaining skills, gaining experience, being a little bit better at things than we were before. And that means that often when we're 40 or 50, 60, even 70 years old, hey, even older than that, we're actually in a better position to create the thing that we've always wanted to make than we were when we were younger. We have more resources, more knowledge, and sometimes even more time on our hands. And that's just a way to fight back against the common narrative we receive from society that you have to have accomplished whatever it is that you want to accomplish by the time that you're a given age. If you haven't started learning the skill by the time you're 30, well, forget about it. You're never going to be good enough at that skill. And that's just not true. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it. If you would take a moment to subscribe to it through the platform of your choice, and maybe even leave a rating and a positive review because it really does help us out. If you'd like to support us in other ways, you can find us at patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for the cost of just a couple cups of coffee a month, you can support the show, and you'll receive a variety of bonuses in return. As a reminder, you can find us on YouTube. It's youtube.com slash C slash Forrest Hansen, and we're increasingly posting video versions of the episodes that we record. So if you prefer to watch rather than listen, well, that's a great option for you. Until next time, thanks for listening.